As you know, uh, we launched out three of our, our, our three oldest kids this summer, and recently one of, uh, one of my boys that got launched out this summer sent me a picture of his new bookshelves. And they were filled with, with books that he had picked up at a, at a library sale nearby. He was very proud of his purchases, that now his bookshelves were not empty. They were filled with all these cool books. And my first thought was, great choice of books. Like, as I went through the titles, I thought, oh, I, I'd like that book. That's a great, oh, I've read that book, and oh, I have that book. In fact, one of the books on the bookshelf that he sent me, the picture, uh, is sitting on my nightstand at this very moment. So my second thought, after, wow, what great books, was, well, you can certainly tell whose son he is. The apple rarely falls from the tree. Like father, like son, is proverbial for a reason. But I wonder if you've thought about the fact that it actually works in both directions. Children reveal a lot about their parents as much as parents explain their children. Now, I wonder if that's why perhaps many people assume that if there is a God, he's a lot like us. After all, as the saying goes, we're we're all God's children, aren't we? So we ought to be able to kind of start with ourselves and into it back, kind of assume what, what God must be like. Of course, he would be concerned with the things we're concerned with. He'd, he'd like and, and dislike the same things as us. He'd have the same sense of justice that we do, the same sense of love. But what if God did not just have people like us, children who are his children by dint of creation, what if God actually, really had a son? Not, not a biological son, because God doesn't do that. Not, not even just a, a, a spiritual son, but, but a divine son. What would that son say God is like? And what would we do if it turns out he's not as much like us as we assumed. Well, to answer that question, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 20. We are concluding, uh, we're, we're in the middle, or the, kind of the early stages of a series, uh, looking at the end of Luke's gospel. This is the conclusion of a multi-year study of Luke. And I want to just start by reading the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, verse One and two. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? I'll stop there. We're going to look at this entire chapter and the first four verses of chapter 21. But I I wanted to read these first two verses just to help you understand what's going on in this large section of scripture we're looking at this morning. The most radical thing about Jesus is that he did not, he did not claim to be a prophet. Rather, he claimed 
to be the divine son of God. And he acted like it. And he spoke like it. That's why the Jewish leaders are asking about his authority here. The passage that we're about to look at this morning is structured as an escalating conflict between Jesus and the leaders of of Israel. It's set here in the final week of his life. I imagine that the conversations we're going to look at this morning covered much of that week. Six questions are going to be asked. Three by the leaders and three by Jesus. The, The leaders want to silence Jesus. Actually, they want to kill him. But by the end of this series of conflicts, as you're going to see, Instead of silencing Jesus, the leaders themselves are silenced. The, the opening and closing question, just to help you see the structure of the passage, the opening and closing, the first and the sixth question, are questions that are all about Jesus' identity. The, the middle questions are all about Old Testament interpretation, but they all revolve around the nature of God. And then our passage ends, finally, after all the questions are done, with a contrast between those who have God's approval and those who don't. So here's, here's the point. Here's the, the main idea of this large, long chapter, plus a little bit into the next chapter. Here's the point. Jesus is the Son who shows us what the Father's like and who the Father likes. Jesus is the Son who shows us what the Father is like And who the Father likes. And the question I want you to ask yourselves this morning is, what does that mean for us? If we would also be God's children. All right. So first, Jesus is the Son. Let's let's pick it back up at the beginning. Chapter 20, verse 1. One day as he was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came and said to him, Tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who is it who gave you this authority? He answered them, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. All right, the end of chapter 19 has has kind of given us our context. Jesus is spending his days in the temple, and now we're actually told what he's teaching the people. He's teaching the people the gospel, the, the good news that the Messiah has come to save God's people. And the people, we're told there at the end of chapter 19, are captivated. They're hanging on his every word. But the leaders are seething. And now able to contain themselves no longer, they they basically interrupt him in the middle of his teaching, demanding to know, by what authority are you doing these things? You see that in verse 2. In other words, they're saying to him, who said you could teach this? Who said you could do these things in the temple? Now, it's, it's a loaded question because they are in charge of the temple. They're in charge of the teaching that happens there. They're in charge of what happens there. And they know full well they didn't give him permission. The only authority that could supersede theirs when it comes to the temple is God's authority. 
And they're quite sure that God didn't give him permission to do these things. So what they're hoping in this question is really to, to get Jesus out over his skis, for him, to, for him to claim too much, to say too much, and trap him in a charge of blasphemy. Jesus sees the trap. And so he asks a question of his own. He answers them with a question. And he basically says, look, before we consider my authority, let's talk about John's authority. Referring to John the Baptist, that's his cousin. By now, John has been beheaded. But he is a popular martyr in Israel. Everybody understood that John was a prophet sent by God. So he says, yeah, let's talk about John. Where did John's authority come from? Verse 4. Answer me that, and I'll answer your question. Well, as you see there in in verses 5 to 7, the the leaders are trapped. They are caught on the horns of a dilemma that is going to impale them no matter which way they go. And so, verse 7, they claim ignorance, agnosticism. We, We don't know. We don't know where John's authority came from. Their dishonesty and their evasion is evident. And so Jesus refuses to answer their dishonest question. Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't know the answer. It's not that he doesn't know the answer to their their question. It's not that he doesn't know the answer to, to his question. What Jesus is doing here is he's forcing them to either admit the truth that John's authority came from God and therefore his did too, or show their true colors. That they have no intention of submitting to any authority but their own, including God's. Which is why he comes back to this exact same question at the end. Look at chapter 20, verse 41. This is the last of the six questions. Then he said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David calls him Lord. How then can the Christ be his son? Now, everyone in Jesus' day knew, they understood that Psalm 110, which is what he's quoting from here, Psalm 110 was a reference to the promised Messiah, the Messiah that was, that was going to come. And Jesus is asking, basically, how do you reconcile the Messiah's sonship of David to his lordship over David? In the ancient Near East, fathers had authority over sons, period, full stop, no questions asked. But here, the father, David, is referring to his son or, or descendant as, as Lord. And he's doing it in the present tense. This is David's present tense when he's saying this. You, you see what's going on here. Jesus is arguing from Psalm 110 on the basis of nouns and possessive pronouns and verb tenses, that the Messiah was pre-existent and divine. And that that was made clear in the Old Testament scriptures themselves. Here's the answer to the Pharisees' question. 
And for them to deny it, they're going to have to deny Scripture itself. The authority that Jesus has is the authority of God himself, the divine Son of God, who is at the same time the heir of David's throne. Now, I I know a lot of you here this morning who are Christians are, are not particularly into theology, like, that's, that's not what you spend your days reading. It's not what you care maybe a ton about. But I, I just want to make the point here, Christian, this is why you should care about theology, about doctrine, about things like the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. Jesus clearly believed it. And he argued on the basis of it. He argued on the basis of the verbal plenary inspiration of scripture the verbal inspiration that is the words not just the ideas the the plenary inspiration all of it not just the red letter bits not just the bits we like now of course when we come to scripture interpretation is still required it's what i'm doing right now And of course, we've got to pay attention to things like context. Words find their meaning in context. But before we claim that Paul couldn't have meant what it sure seems like he means when he put boundaries in place on our behavior, on our activities, on on our, our, our lives in the church and our lives at home, On the basis of gender? Yeah, before we claim that Paul couldn't have meant that, that he couldn't have put gendered boundaries in place. Or or before we claim that Leviticus was just a product of culture when it condemned homosexual practice. But, But before we do that, understand what's at stake. What's at stake is the legitimacy of Jesus' claim To be the son of God. You lose the authority of scripture on on gender. On on the office of elder in the church or or the, the roles of husbands and wives at home. You lose the authority of scripture on that. You lose the authority of scripture on our sexuality and our sexual practice. And you lose the authority of scripture on Jesus' claim to be the son of God. You lose the whole ballgame, whether you realize it or not. This is why this doctrine matters. Jesus stakes everything that he isn't about on the truth of Scripture. Now, it's, it's trendy to say that, that Paul invented Christianity because Jesus never claimed divinity. But what I want you to see here in these verses is that nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus was Trinitarian. Okay? Jesus was Trinitarian. Jesus understood who he was. He did not shy from making that claim when the time was right. The authority that he has is both from God and as God. Jesus said in John chapter 5, the son does only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. But then he also said in John 14, the one who has seen me has seen the father. The incarnation is essential if we would know God. 
Only God can reveal God. We, we, we like to think that we could start with ourselves and think about what we're like and then intuit from ourselves to God. Friends, you can't do it that way. The, the only one who can tell us what God is like is God himself. And nothing and no one reveals the Father like the Son. Like Father, like Son. Like Son, like Father. Every claim that Christianity makes flows from this truth. The truth of the Trinity, the truth of the Incarnation. We don't follow a good teacher we don't, we don't follow a wise sage. We follow the Son because the Son was sent to reveal the Father as only the Son could do. Because the Son is fully God, just as the Father is. Not three gods, one God, three persons. And the Son was sent to show us and tell us what God is like. Well, that leads to the second thing we want to think about then in in our passage this morning. Jesus is the Son who, second, shows us what the Father's like. We're going to look now at at verses 9 all the way through 40 in chapter 20. There are three interactions here, three more questions. The first question is asked by Jesus. The next two are asked by the leaders. They're trying to trap him. We don't have time to go into lots of detail with each of these, even though I'd love to because there's a ton of just like rich theology that comes out of these sections. What what, what I want you to notice is that all three turn on Jesus' assertion of what the Father is like. Those assertions are going to enrage the leaders. But the assertions are undeniable. Every time he's going to back them up by scripture, leaving the leaders utterly silenced, forced to agree with him. So so let's look at that first interaction. Look at chapter 20, verse 9. Now he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, That must never happen. But Jesus looked at them and said, Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. Then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour, because they knew he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. The first interaction involves Jesus 
telling a a parable about a vineyard, its owner, the tenant farmers who are managing it. It's as much an allegory as it is a parable, and everyone who heard it understood it that way. The owner is clearly God, the vineyard is Israel, the servants are the Old Testament prophets, and the tenant farmers are the current leaders of Israel. And who's the son? The son is the Messiah. And you can tell everybody gets this. You can tell everybody knows exactly what he's saying because of the crowd's response. That must never happen. They're horrified there in verse 16. They're horrified at the thought that Israel would reject the Messiah and be judged for it. The Messiah is what they've been longing for. Of course, when he shows up, we're not going to do that, do that to him. But their response then provokes Jesus' question. In verse 17. Then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isn't this, Jesus says, isn't this exactly what the scriptures have predicted? That rejected stone is the Messiah. It it comes from that passage we heard, read earlier, Psalm 118. And all of Israel's leaders of the day, the, the common understanding of interpretation of Psalm 18 was that that was a reference to the Messiah. Jesus draws the conclusion, whether you stumble over this rock or it falls on you, either way, judgment is the result. God is patient God is long-suffering. He sent one prophet after another. But God's patience has a limit. That's true for Israel. And it's true for all of us. Israel's rejection of the Messiah was not unknowing. It wasn't accidental. It was a deliberate and obstinate rejection. After they had been warned repeatedly. First by the prophets... And then by Jesus himself. But here's what you need to understand. If If you are not a Christian, if you are not in a right relationship with God, your rejection is not unknowing either. It is not accidental or inadvertent either. Your conscience accuses you. But but, but why? Where, Where did your conscience even come from? Your sense of justice is, is often provoked in this life. But, but why? why? Why do you even have a sense of justice? Where did it come from? It's there because God put it there. You live in a moral universe. And deep down, every single one of us knows it. And, and yet despite that, that inescapable knowledge that we live in a moral universe, that there's a God who made us, that we're account- accountable to, j- just like those tenant farmers, kind of irrational pride takes over and, and we think that we can just make God go away simply by denying him or ignoring him, claiming he doesn't exist. But friend, you can't make God go away. And you cannot escape his judgment for withholding from him what you owe him. And it's that question, what you owe him, that leads to the second interaction and the second question. Let's look at verse 20. They watched closely 
and sent spies who pretended to be righteous so that they could catch him in what he said to hand him over to the governor's rule and authority. They questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach correctly and you don't show partiality, but teach truthfully the way of God. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But detecting their craftiness, he said to them, show me a denarius. Whose image and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they said. Well, then, he told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were not able to catch him in what he said in public and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Well, the leaders don't want to wait any longer. They want him dead now. So they try to trap him and specifically they want to trap him into saying something seditious against Rome so they can hand him over to the Roman governor and have him put to death. The question they decide to put to him is about taxes and they are sure they've got him. Because he's either going to say, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, in which case they can hand him over for sedition. Or he can say, yes, of course, you should pay taxes. And then they've discredited him with the people of Israel. He's just a Roman stooge and lackey. They think they've got him either way. But Jesus asks, whose image is on the coin? They admit it's Caesar's. And so Jesus replies with one of his most famous sayings, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. That simple statement is is the fountainhead of Christian thought about about politics, about, about the separation and the relation between church and state, about the relative authority of government to God. I wish I could unpack all of that. Whole books have been written on this. That he makes the point that that coin belongs to Caesar. It's got Caesar's image on it. So, of course, you give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. But what we need to focus on this morning is the answer to the implicit question, so what belongs to God? Well, the answer is they do. They bear God's image. And so, oh God, their very lives. This is why God can demand of us the, the fruit of our lives, thinking back to that image from the, from the parable in the earlier part of the chapter. They're all up in arms over taxes. But what they really need to be concerned about is the back taxes that they owe to God. The, the back taxes of, of worship and obedience and love. They're silenced and amazed, but their hatred is undiminished. It's undiminished because once again they've been caught and they don't like what they see. Here is the essence of our rebellion against God. Sin cannot simply be reduced to or trivialized as the breaking of rules. That's what the religious leaders really thought about sin. There are a whole bunch of rules. Don't break them. But that's not it at all. As this passage makes very clear, sin is defaulting on the debt we owe God. We think our lives belong to us and we live them as as if they do. 
But the reality is our lives are on loan from God. It's his image that is stamped on us. Our lives belong to him. And they are to be paid back to him with interest. Not, not, not the interest of some sort of penalty, but the interest of, of love, the interest of worship, the interest of obedience. And the reality is, we are all so far in arrears on that payment that we are utterly bankrupt. God is patient, but he is the judge. We owe him our lives. And we're going to give an account to him of our lives someday. That's what that last section is all about. Look at verse 27. Some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother has a wife and dies childless, his brother should take the wife and produce offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. Also the second and the third took her. In the same way, all seven died and left no children. Finally, the woman died too. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For all seven had married her. Jesus told them, The children of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are counted worthy to take part in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they can no longer die. Because they are like angels and are children of God, since they are children of the resurrection. Moses even indicated in the passage about the burning bush that the dead are raised, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, because all are living to him. Some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him anything. All right, so this, this third interaction is with the Sadducees, the political leaders. And, and, and all of you, I'm sure, know the little children's saying that helps us understand the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. See, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because there is no resurrection. Yeah, okay. Well, the, the main point, though, is that they're the political leaders. Uh, they, they, they are really the ones in charge. And their question is... It's about how do we reconcile leveret marriage, Old Testament law about providing an heir for your dead brother's family line. How do we reconcile leveret marriage, which they describe there in verse 28, with the resurrection? But the problem, of course, is it's a dishonest question because they don't even believe in the resurrection. They're trying, in other words, to catch Jesus in what they assume is going to be an absurdity. That allows them to to mock him and, and discredit him before the people. But Jesus turns the tables on them. He points out that they don't understand what they're talking about. The resurrection life of the age to come will not be like this life. Jesus says we're not going to marry or, or be given in marriage. Why? Because in that age we will no longer die. And to prove that claim... He points to Moses' words, where where Moses calls the Lord the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see that there in verse 37. 
Now, that's a reference back to Exodus chapter 3. Moses there is, is quoting in Exodus 3. This, this, he's recounting this conversation that he had with God. And it's God who's speaking there. It's God who's describing himself. And God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. No, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus draws the conclusion, all are living to God. Because God makes them alive. One of the the great claims of Scripture, one of the fundamental claims of Scripture, is that death is not the end of us. The patriarch's bodies had been dead for centuries when God spoke to Moses. But the patriarchs themselves were present to God. And so will all of us be. When we add up these three interactions, what does Jesus say God is like? Well, he tells us that he is the patient God who nevertheless judges all because all owe their very lives to him. And we will all give an account before him someday. That's what God is like. Now, does that sound like what you think God is like? I'll say it doesn't sound anything like the God of of liberal Christianity, because that God would never judge anybody. And and it doesn't sound like, like the God of Islam, who is capricious and distant. There's no thought even of a relationship with God. I don't think it sounds like the God of most people's imagination because I think the God of most people's imagination generally approves of them. It certainly doesn't sound like the God of Israel's leaders because the God of Israel's leader, leaders was, was genuinely impressed with all of their religiosity and rule-keeping. But in fact, this is what God is like. At every turn, Jesus pointed to the scriptures to back up his claim. That's why the leaders had no answer for him. They didn't know God. They they had never encountered him in the scriptures, even though they spent their whole lives reading it. But Jesus knew God because he came from God. The eternal son, now God in the flesh. Now, there was one other thing that Jesus pointed out about God to the Sadducees that I, I didn't mention. You see it there in verse 35. He says that some would be counted worthy to take part in the age to come and the resurrection of the dead. Well, who are they? Who's actually worthy to take part in this kingdom of God, this, this incredible new age, rather than being judged. Well, that leads to the final thing I want us to notice in this passage. Jesus is not only the son who shows us what the father's like, third, he shows us who the father likes. Look at verse 45, 40, um, yeah, for, verse 45 of chapter 20. While all the people were listening, he said to his disciples, 
Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes and who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. These will receive harsher judgment. He looked up and saw the rich dropping their offerings into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow dropping in two tiny coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For all these people have put in gifts out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Jesus draws a straightforward contrast here between those who are judged and those who are blessed, uh, approved of by God. On the one hand are the religious leaders. The religious leaders are all about themselves. They're all about their own glory. They love to see and be seen. That's why they're always in the marketplace wearing their best robes. They love to be honored and greeted. But Jesus points out they are simply greedy hypocrites. On the other hand, he notices this this poor widow who puts just two tiny coins into the offering for the temple. If we were to kind of translate them into today's dollars... They would be barely worth a quarter of a penny. But Jesus says she has given more than the rest. Because she gave out of her poverty. Rather than out of her surplus. Who does God like? Who does the father approve of? He approves of the one who gives their life to him in faith. This widow was a picture of that. She she gave all that she had. She she trusted the Lord with her very life, holding nothing back. Christian, I wonder if this is what your life looks like. There was absolutely nothing showy about what she did. The, the, The rich giving out of their surplus, they were quite showy. Everybody noticed. I'm sure you could hear the sound of the huge bags of coins dropping into the offering. Now, this this woman was nearly unnoticed, but Jesus noticed her. And what he noticed is that she was all in with whatever she had. Christian, what do you have? Whatever you have, it was given to you as a gift. Do Do you only trust the Lord with the surplus of your life? Where you have enough margin, where, where, you're, where you're brave enough, where, where you have enough knowledge and expertise? Are you only trusting the Lord with the surplus? What would it look like for you this week to be all in with your faith? Giving everything you have in worship, in obedience, and trust to the God who made you. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand. It is not faith that makes us worthy. It is not faithfulness that makes us worthy. Christ makes us worthy of the age to come and the life of the resurrection. The one that the Father loves is the Son. Because it's the Son and only the Son who has given himself wholly, fully, unreservedly to the Father. This is what Jesus came to do. 
He's not just the only son. He is the beloved son. Because he held nothing back. He gave the father everything that the father was owed. He is the model tenant farmer. He gave every fruit of obedience, every fruit of worship, every fruit of love. And then he went a step further. And he gave his very life as a sacrifice. Jesus was the son sent to be murdered by the other tenants. He is the stone that was rejected by the builders. Thinking about Jesus' reference to the the patriarchs there at the end of chapter 20. He is the ram that Abraham sacrificed in the place of Isaac. He is the animals torn in two on Abraham's behalf. Jesus said in John chapter 10, This is why my father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Out of love for the father and to accomplish all of the father's plans, the son took on flesh and then he gave that flesh. He gave that life as a sacrifice for sin on the cross. And to demonstrate his worthiness, to demonstrate the worthiness of that sacrifice, God raised him from the dead three days later. He, and he alone, is the one who is worthy to partake in the age to come based on his life. But the good news of the gospel is that all who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus are now united to him in his death. His death becomes your death. You, you are then united to him in his resurrection. His life becomes your life. You are united to him and through that union are adopted into his family. The son brings many sons and daughters with him by repentance and faith in his work. And friends, in this, the son shows us one more thing about the father. The father is not only patient, Not only just, not only powerful. The Father is love. Full of mercy to those who do not deserve mercy. Because the Father sent the Son so that we might become the children of God. If you're here this morning, if you're passing by, if you can hear the sound of my voice and and you're not a Christian, this is what we want you to understand. Not that you have to work harder and do better to be worthy of being counted among God's children. No, simply that you must turn away from all of that and put your faith in Christ and allow him to do all that is needed to be worthy on your behalf. Allow him to bring you in to the family. If you're a Christian, I want you to understand, therefore, that that sanctification is not so much a condition as it is a promise. Sometimes we Christians get this wrong and we think we've got to work on our sanctification. We've We've got to work on being more and better so that God will love us more and better. But but no, if you have been adopted into the family then Christian, like father, like son, 
like sons and daughters. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, you need to work it out. But in the sure and certain knowledge that God is at work in you, making you to resemble his son who resembles him. I mean, I think back to that picture that, that, you know, that uh, Samuel sent me, right? Samuel didn't fill his bookshelf with books because he was working hard to be like his dad. Samuel can't help it. (laughs) He just has spent way too much time around me. And he is my kid. It's what happens. So it is with you, Christian. Your sanctification is a promise that will be fulfilled. He is making you like his son, having adopted you to be his sons and daughters. The bad news of Christianity is that God is not like us. He is holy. He is the judge. But the good news is that if you are in Christ, God likes you. He likes you. More than that, he loves you. You have his approval. He loves you with an everlasting love that will not let even death, the death of your body, bring that relationship to an end. Like father, like son, like sons and daughters. Whose child would you rather be this morning? Would you join me in prayer? Take just a moment. Maybe think of some of those ways in which you've been wrongly trying to commend yourself to God, earn his approval. And just confess that to the Lord. Lord, we come to you this morning and we confess that so often we have wrongly thought about you, making you over in our image rather than understanding that we have been made in your image. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see what you're really like. But we pray that you would help us see the wholeness of that, the fullness of that, your your holiness, yes, The judgment that we deserve, yes. But also your incredible love for us in Jesus Christ. Let us see that as well. And put our trust wholly there. That we might indeed be children of our Heavenly Father. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.